0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you, and enjoy. That's just fun right there. I hope, I hope that you know that is your story, that, that your name is written down in glory, and you know the author of that story. I pray that's, that's your confession too today. So grateful for the choir. If you hadn't heard that song, such a great song, Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So we're beginning the book of Exodus today, beginning the book of Exodus. And so let me give you kind of an overview, an overview of what uh, you're going to see in the book of Exodus. And uh, essentially, in the overview of the book of Exodus, I'm going to answer three questions for us. The three questions are, who am I? Who am I? Um, In this story, the book of Exodus, who am I? Secondly, uh, who is God? How does He fit in? And third, who are we? Who are we? And so you're going to see a lot of of holdover in the book of Exodus because we're going to use the book of Exodus. I think the book of Exodus lends itself to... Uh, teaching us a lot about the church, that we are God's people, that God is preparing his people. He's got a great plan for us, that he's bringing us into the promised land. And as we are on our way, God is revealing himself to us. And so he wants to use us in great ways. He wants to do amazing things in our lives. So who am I? Who is God? And who are we together? And that's what we're going to dive into over the next handful of weeks. My goal for us on Sunday mornings is for us to understand to a a greater degree who God's created us to be, and in understanding who God's created us to be, that each one of us would begin to live in that God-given identity. Now, confession, I've spent a number of years telling you and our church that it's not about you, And, and ultimately it's not about us. I've spent uh, a long time telling us that we're not all that special and in fact we're kind of sinful. Then that God saved you despite you. But I want to spend the next few chapters of Exodus teaching us about how God designed each one of us as individuals and how He designed us as the church corporately and that you are intricately made, that He has created you and knitted you together, and God has, for some reason or another, allowed you to be raised the way that you were, experience the things that you did, and He did that on purpose, but He also did it for a purpose. And I, over the next few weeks, I want you to see that, that, that uh, to, to, to kind of steal the idea of the book of Esther, that you were made for the day, and the day was made for you, or as Esther says it, that you were made, created for such a time as this. And so I want in the book of Exodus, I want you to look around in the world and see what's going on, all of the bad, all of the good, all of the things that make us squirm, all of the things that make us sick, all of the things going on around us in our world, I want you to begin to look at it, and, and instead of having fear, realize that you were made for the day, and that And and that it was made for you. That you are here for such a time as this. That's one of my goals. Because I believe that if, if we could ever really see ourselves from God's perspective, listen to me church family, that we would be such a dangerous force on the world that God desires to unleash you on the world in such a way that the powers and principalities of hell would tremble at us. That every day that when your feet hit the floor, that, they would, that the powers and principalities of hell would say, oh no, he or she's awake, get ready. That every day... Every day as Seneca Baptist leaves this building that hell would say to arms because we are leaving. And and I just want us to live every day in light of who he made me to be and his mission for us. And if we would do that, the, the Bible reveals that hell's gates cannot stand against God's church. So today, I want you to see yourself as a part of God's people, His beloved people, His people of promise. But listen to me, before I begin, I I have to say it, that not all of us are God's people. It is possible to be a part of an organization or to have community with God's people while not yet be one of God's children. And so it's easy to go through life being identified with the church, being identified with a way of living, an upbringing, and yet not be a child of God. But today, before the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to become a child of God, to become a part of God's chosen people, if you so desire. Okay, so here are four things I want you to see out of this text today. Four things I want you to see about being God's people. So we're starting with kind of a generic, we are God's people. I am a part of God's people. Very generic, and we're going to dive in deeper and deeper, get more specific each week as we go to who am I. So number first day, we are God's people. Well, the first thing I want you to see that we are God's people by God's plan. God's people by God's plan. I want you to look at verse 5 to verse 7 all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Here's what I want you to see. We are God's people by God's plan. So this these few verses right here in chapter 1 kind of summarize the, the chapters of the end, uh, end of the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis ends with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 50. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob ultimately going into Egypt. And this is a part of God's plan. That God from the very beginning of time is building a people for himself. A people that would be His holy people, His own possession. And how do I know that? I want you to look at a few key words right here that are underlined on the screen. The first word is fruitful. The second word is multiplied. And the third word is filled. What does that sound like? If you go way back to the beginning, what does that sound like? Creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says it this way. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In Genesis chapter 9, 1, after um, Noah gets off the ark, the He he offers this sacrifice to the Lord. And God says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, from the beginning of time, God desired to make himself a people for his own possession. And in Egypt, God is making them fruitful. God is making the people of Israel multiply. And God is filling the land with them. And that brings us to a guy named Jacob. 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 Look down in verse um, 5. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So they came into Egypt 70 persons. And now the land is filled with them. And so if we think about Jacob, God makes an incredible promise to or plan to Jacob. Chapter 46, Genesis 46 2-4. God spoke to Israel in visions. That's Jacob in visions of the night. And he said Jacob, Jacob, He said, Here I am. Then he said, I am the God. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. See, in other words, God has a plan for them, and he's going to send them to Egypt to accomplish his plan. So they are becoming God's people by God's plan. I will make you a great nation, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. And then he mentions Joseph in one chapter earlier in Genesis chapter 45. This is what God says to Joseph. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery for God sent me before you to preserve life. God did this. Do you remember what chapter 50 verse 20 says? Genesis 50:20 says what you intended for evil God meant for good. This is God's doing. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years that there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Here's what I want you to see today, that you are a part of God's people because God had a plan to make you a part of God's people. How do I know that? Matthew chapter 16 says, um, Peter is asked this question, or the disciples are asked a question, who do people say that I am? Some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, some say you're, 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 just, you're just another teacher, and he says, no, who do you say that I am? Peter, with a resounding answer, says you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus says, "Right, and upon that rock I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I want you to understand that even Jesus said that I'm building my church and my church is my plan. I want you to understand sometimes we talk about the church as something that's really unnecessary in our world. Uh, Christians, in quotes, Christians sometimes will talk about it. Well, no, I don't really need the church. I don't go to church. Church doesn't have a place in my life. And I just want you to understand that, that, that that's not really true. That when we live apart from God's design and God's plan, we miss out on so many of the blessings that God intends for you and for me. I've even heard people go so far as to say, Well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And that would be like me walking up to you, husband, and saying, you're awesome, but your wife is just horrible. You're going to punch me in the mouth. And that's what we say when we say to Jesus, well, I love you, but I don't like your church. You're talking about my bride. I bought her with my blood. She is my plan from the beginning of time. I did that. And I've made people a part of the church by my blood. Don't talk about blood-bought people like that. And so I want you to understand today, first, that we are God's people. I am a part of God's people because it's a part of God's plan. Second, that we are God's people by God's promise. God's promise. Now, from the very beginning, God made a promise that He was going to make for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a people. And he, would, he made this promise. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 to 6, gives us this promise. It said that God brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to, them, to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then later on in chapter 15, verse 13 through 14 says, The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So I just want you to hear the promise that God's made. I'm going to make your people so many that the stars of the sky are, are, are a comparison to how many your people are going to be. And Part of my plan is going to be sending your people into slavery for 400 years, and I'm going to use that. It's a promise. I'm going to use it to accomplish my plan. God made a promise to Abram. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a blessing. He is making a promise to God's people, Israel. Israel. And I want you to understand that today, that is fulfilled for us in Jesus. It's fulfilled for us in Jesus. Can I just reiterate the words of Genesis? That he says, you're going to go in and you're going to be sojourners in a foreign land. This is not our home, is it? Church family, this... This earth is not our home. We are far too comfortable in a place that does not belong to us. It was not made for us. God has made us for eternity in heaven. He has made us for another country whose builder and its foundations are in God. That is our home, and he's, He has made us sojourners. We This promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus. How, do we, how are we made a people? Through Jesus. How do we get a new land? Through Jesus. How does he make us a blessing to the world? Through Jesus. What we need to see in this text or in in this passage is a picture that God gives us here. God's word giving us a picture of God's church. God's people, God's church was always God's plan. And it was foreshadowed in the book of Exodus and it was fulfilled in the book of Acts and we become a part of God's church according to God's plan and God's promise accomplished by God's Redeemer. So let me connect this to Jesus if I haven't done that already. On the Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember when Jesus went up the mountain and He took Peter, James, and John up with Him? On the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Moses and Elijah show up there on the mountain. you remember this crazy story? Peter says something crazy like, oh my gosh, I'm going to build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Peter. And God basically says, Peter, be quiet. Listen. There on the mountain, it says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem. Now, that word departure is a fun word. You want to know how the Bible's connected? Right here, the writer, God Himself, connects Exodus and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because that word for departure is the Greek word exodon. Does that sound familiar? Exodus. And so this is what it says Who appeared in glory and spoke of His Exodus, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus, who is a greater Moses, was accomplishing a greater exodus out of slavery into freedom, drawn out of Egypt and into the family or people of God, from sin and into the family and people of God. In Exodus, there was a Passover lamb. And Jesus, just after the Mount of Transfiguration, goes and becomes the Passover lamb slain for the sin of the world. Jesus died to set us free and to make us a part of God's people, God's church. He accomplished for us ultimately what Moses only showed a picture of. I'm going to make you a great number. I'm going to be a blessing to you. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to give you a land and you're going to be my possession, my treasured people. How does that happen? Christ through Christ Moses showed us a picture and Jesus brought it to fulfillment Moses showed us a shadow of what was truly the substance why did God do this because listen to me church family God is a covenant-making covenant-keeping God he chose to set his love on us why because God loves you, period. If you ever thought to yourself that, you know why God loves me? It's because I do this. It's because I am this. I just want you to understand, if you think God loves you because of you, you have missed the mark, you have missed the boat. God didn't look down on, from heaven and say, wow, I love him because he is so great. I'm so thankful that Ryan's on my team. I don't know what I'd do without him. God's never said such. He loves you because He loves you. He saved you because He saved you. Because He chose to die on the cross for you. And I just want you to understand this morning that you and I, we are a part of God's people not because of works. Not because we're good. No, we are made a part of God's people because God is love. And in this, His love was manifested that God sent His own Son, born of a man, born un, or born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law and to make us His children. So... Here's what I want you to see. third thing I want you to see today, God's people face fierce persecution. God's people face fierce persecution. Let's look. Verse 10. Come. The people are too many, Pharaoh says. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Can I just tell you, you might not believe this about you, and, and we might not believe this about God's church here, but when Satan looks at you or looks at us, He is in dread of the potential that God gave you as a new creation in Christ Jesus. He knows who you are. He sees Jesus in you. He sees His Holy Spirit in you and He is in dread of you. He is in dread of us. I want you to understand anything that God ever does, whatever God puts His hand to, will always face opposition. Whatever work God begins in your life will always face opposition. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, see, uh, see them on the stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. Whatever God begins to do will face opposition. God begins to build a people, and there's opposition that arises. There's opposition that arises. God is fulfilling his plan and his promise to. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is fulfilling his promise given at creation, given to Noah. He's fulfilling his plan that is from the very beginning to make a people for his possession. And when God starts doing what only God can do in a way that only God can do it, opposition arises. And Pharaoh says, whoa, these people are too many. They're too great for us and I'm in dread of them and so we've got to do something to squash them and if we do something to squash them then we'll be stronger than them and so he says to the midwives when you see a woman on the birth stool and she's giving birth to a boy you kill that child. Abortion is not a new thing. We see it right here in this text and it goes against the very plan that God has There's opposition that comes when God begins to do something. And I want to remind you, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 say it this way, "...put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." That Bible verse reveals something to us, that there are cosmic, spiritual forces out there to destroy what God is building. Why? Well, I think Exodus tells us, lest they multiply and they join in the fight against us. Verse 12 says the Egyptians were in dread. That's why they're fighting so hard. Paul tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 that indeed all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want God to do something in your life to produce godliness? You want Him to sanctify you? Guess what? Be ready for opposition. You want Him to use you? You want to go on the mission field? You want to do something great for the Lord, with the Lord? You want to be a part of God's plan of redemption to the lost? Be ready. Be ready. Opposition's coming. So here's my question. What does it say what does it mean if you have little or no opposition in your life? What if it means what, what does it mean about you? What, is, what does this truth say about you if in your life there it's all smooth sailing and Satan is never opposing you. What is it it teaching about us? What God is doing in us? Or maybe what He's not doing in you? If Satan is not coming after you, it, it only reveals one thing. Satan might already have you. A missionary, an IMB missionary who served many years on the field, Somalia, really hard places. He was asked a question, will... Satan ever send persecution to the United States of America? And he his answer was striking. I'm not saying it's theological, but it's striking. He said why would Satan want to send persecution to America? The church is already asleep. And why wake up what is already asleep? If we have no Opposition in our lives, maybe we're just sleeping our life away. A lack of opposition in our life is probably not a sign of godliness or a person being a part of something bigger than themselves. It might, in fact, be evidence of the opposite. I mean, think about examples. You got Moses here, you got Daniel, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you got Nehemiah, you got the apostles. Everything they put their hand to always faced opposition. What does it say about our life if we're not facing opposition? Why? Why in the world does, does, do we think this is true? In our world today, I mean, we can't obviously believe that Satan's a real thing. He's out there and he's trying to get people, can you? Just look around. Look at how hard Satan's fighting against the church right now. Not just our church, not not our church, but church in general. Whether we think of how Satan has tempted the church to abandon sound doctrine, how many churches are just giving up on what is true, what is scriptural, what is biblical? How many church leaders are falling into sin and losing their places of ministry and influence in these days? If he can get a few prominent pulpits to fall, what could he do in the pews? Think about how churches sometimes fight and grumble over temporary issues and are distracted from eternal matters. We're going to fight about this, and Satan goes, yeah, yeah, you go fight about that. Because if you fight about that, you won't do what God's called you to do. Satan will distract God's people with money, and politics and, and where he will hit you wherever it hurts. Do you remember when when there was the demoniac, the, the 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 one who was hanging out in the tombs and he cut himself and he was nobody could bind him with chains. There was no chain strong enough to bind him. And Jesus gets out of the boat, and this man comes bowing down before Jesus and he says, Why do you torture me, son of the most high God? I adjure you to leave me. Jesus says, What's your name? I'm legion, for we are many. And the man experiences the love and grace and power of Jesus there on that mountainside. And the demons go into what? A herd of pigs. And so all of the herdsmen are amazed... And then they go and get their town folk, and the townfolk come back and they ask Jesus to do what? Stay, tell us more about this. We want more of your power and your grace and your love. No. Leave us. You've hit us in our pocketbook. So how do you know? How do you know that, that Satan is opposing you? Maybe it's when or I guess when Satan is distracting you or he is tempting us, when possessions overtake people. If possessions overtake people in your your life or your church, when the process of decision is more important than the outcome of the decision itself, we are being distracted and tempted. When discord or disunity creeps in, when people become obstacles and enemies, When I'm too busy to declare the gospel of Jesus, I'm too busy to serve in God's church, I'm too busy for church itself. When sports or extracurricular activities push the church out of your life, when we have no time for Bible reading and prayer, when we are devoting more time to teaching our children to be good students, good citizens, good ball players, when my hope is in the next elected office, I have missed the boat. I have been tempted and I have been opposed and I have been distracted and I have taken the bait. Satan will attack the church because he is in dread of it. He is afraid that each one of us would join God's army and fight against him. he knows, he knows that the church holds the only hope of eternal salvation for people. He knows that we have the only good news the world knows. He knows that the church is God's plan A for the redemption of mankind. And He will do anything to oppose God's church. I think it was C.S. Lewis said that we commit two errors when talking about the devil. He said one is we either give Him too much credit, or the other is we give him no credit at all. See, Satan is ruthless. He will come and do anything to keep the church from being fruitful, from gospel multiplication, from evangelizing, from impacting our communities, from declaring the gospel and making disciples of all nations. He will do anything he can from keeping us from accomplishing our purpose. But here's what I want you to see in this text that is so fantastic and so beautiful that God's, I want you to see God's providence in the light of persecution. Here's the beauty of the story. Here's the good news. Satan cannot stop what God is doing. Satan cannot stop what God is doing. Verse 12, listen to what it says in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed the more they did what the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and then in verse 20 says so God dealt well with the midwives and midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong if we trust the lord if we will obey as a church god has a way to redeem what Satan intends for evil and God has a way to weaponize what Satan intends for evil and to use it against him so that God gets the glory through Satan's evil schemes. Isn't that good news? Is, is Satan opposing you? Fine. Fine. Let him oppose you. Trust the Lord. Obey Him. And and God will find a way to turn Satan's schemes on himself and weaponize it against him. And God will be glorified. And the church will be uh, growing if we trust the Lord in the middle of that persecution. In the middle of that opposition. I'm going to talk about this in the days and weeks ahead. Some of you have experienced things in your life that are horrendous, are horrible, are terrible. Satan intended great evil in certain things in your life. I think there's a statistic, something like this, that one of every four women inside God's church have experienced abuse of some kind. And that is a horrible statistic. You might have been raised in a family that was not so loving, not so kind. You may have gone through things that have made you experience great loss at a young age. Things too difficult for words. But what God has a way of doing is is redeeming those things. He has a way of bringing beauty from ashes, hope in despair. And he has a way to turn your story, your mess, your difficulty into a message and a ministry. And he will weaponize it against the one who deemed it for evil. He will use it for good. Satan can't stop God's plans. He is just not that powerful. Most of us say, Well, I'm, Ryan, I understand the thing about persecution, but I don't necessarily want it, right? And I, okay, I think we'd be masochists if you said, Yeah, bring persecution on. I'm ready. (laughs) But I want to read to you. An um, in, in Oxford study um, it was their journal of sociology and religion it states this the most important determinant of Christian vitality is the extent to which governments give official support to Christianity through their laws and practices it goes on however it's not in the way that devout believers might expect as governmental support for, in, for Christianity increases, the number of Christians declines significantly. Did you hear that? Can I read that again? As governmental support for Christianity increases, the number of Christians declines significantly. Where is the church declining in the world? Europe? America? The West? Where is the church growing in the world? In places that face the most opposition and persecution. Asia. Africa. The Middle East. Isn't that funny? The article goes on. The study also found that harsh persecution does not weaken the church, but at times even strengthens it. What Satan intended for evil, God used for good. They cite nations such as Muslim-dominated countries like Afghanistan and Iran, where Christians are heavenly... heavily persecuted and yet the church has been and continues to experience rapid growth see here's what you can uh, take from this text and from that study is that it doesn't matter how hard satan opposes the church that satan's opposition will not stifle the church's growth you can't stop what god is building I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Aren't you glad to be a part of an unfailing business? I'm glad to be a part of something that nobody can ruin. That's the best investment you got going right now. Have you looked at the stock market? How's that going for you? Put your investment, and I don't mean your money, I say put your investment of your eternity, of your hope, of your future, in what God is building Be a part of it. He has made you His people by His grace. What a great joy it is to be a part of His people and His church. And this is a manifestation of His family on earth. And we get to be a part of an eternal business. Hebrews chapter 13 says, We have not received a kingdom that can be shaken. Aren't you glad? God will prevail. Satan can't thwart God's plan. Satan's not powerful enough or crafty enough. I want to end with this scripture. It's up on the screen. It's uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen. Remember, Stephen was stoned. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great Persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You know what persecution did in the early church? It made the word scatter. Like seeds being sown in fertile soil. Let me bring this back. Let me wrap this up God is in the book of Exodus from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation, is making a people for himself. How does he do it? By the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone. We become a part of God's people by coming through the gate, the door, whose name is Jesus. He is the good shepherd, he is guarding it. And let me tell you, Satan can't unsave what God saved. He's not that powerful. Satan can't undo what God has done. Satan cannot thwart anything that is eternal. He can only destroy what's not. But he can distract. And I want to encourage you this morning. You showed up at Seneca Baptist Church, maybe out of obligation, maybe out of duty, maybe, maybe out of joy, maybe because you're ready to see God do something. And I just want to say that we get to be a part of a church with God's Word at the center, with the gospel at the center, and there is nothing that God can't do here. Are you with me? Don't you want to be a part of it? I sure do. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Seems like an odd time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a perfect time. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what are we participating in? The body, the broken body and shed blood of Christ, which makes us the people of God. We're saved out of something and into something. We're saved from sin, from slavery, into salvation, into eternal life, into abundant life, into God's family and God's people. We're saved out of of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, how does that happen? By trusting in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus the Son. There are some of you, you you, you might know now that you've been a part of a people, but you've never been a part of God's people. You've been identified with an organization, but you've never been a part of God's family. Today, you have the opportunity to come in. the lord's supper holy communion is there's nothing magical about the the substance it's grape juice from a bottle wasn't water that jesus turned into wine or anything like that it's grape juice from a bottle it's crackers that if we can just be honest aren't that good but it's very significant it's significant because in it I'm saying that I have trusted in Jesus. It's, it's, it's so important for the life of each of us as individuals and for the life of the body that I'm saying that I have trusted in Jesus, that He is my only hope, that He has made us a people. This is why I don't believe that you take communion um, at your homes or we don't send people out and give communion at homes because it's meant to be with the body. We have been made a part of the body, how? By God's broken body and shed blood. And it's also symbolic that the same one who saved me is coming back one day. And we take it remembering that what he started, he will one day fulfill. And so if you're not a believer today, if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, this is not for you. Please watch, please pray, please ask God to give you faith and repentance. Please, if you want to turn from your sins today and trust Jesus, do so. But this is for believers. If you're next to a child and that child is not a Christian yet, remember that this is not for them. It's going to have a good conversation for you moms and dads later on to help them come into the faith. So uh, I'm going to ask uh, Miss Margaret to come play. What we're going to do right now is go directly into the Lord's Supper. Deacons, would you please take your places? And church family, as the deacons are taking their places, um, there are two sets of trays that will be going out. The first tray, set of trays that you'll receive is the tray with bread. The second tray, set of trays that you'll receive is the tray with the cup. And if you'll receive those, and then be patient uh, and we'll eat together and I'll lead us in that time together. Father, would you bless this moment? And may it be a holy moment. A moment where we meet with you. A moment where we experience the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Would this be a moment, Lord, where we come into, some of us come into the family of God by trusting in Jesus. And others rejoice that we have been made a part of the people. Rejoice that I'm one of God's children and celebrate what God has done, what God is doing, and what He has promised to do. Lord, we love You. And if there's anybody in this room, give them faith, give them sight, give them trust, and grant them repentance this morning. Jesus' name.